it's time to head to the UK. In, um, well, in many parts of the United Kingdom are on the brink of collapse at the moment, the government clearly, the economy. But uh, now there's evidence of a systematic physical falling apart in the school system. Ian Dunt is a columnist with the I newspaper and he's here with the latest from London. Uh, So, Ian, summer's breaks over for students and they're coming back to a scandal in the schoolyards. Or rather, they're not going back because many of them can't go back to school because the schools have been deemed unsafe. I'm currently looking, it, it came out just a couple of hours ago, at the latest government poster, which is... I mean, even in this era of some of the most inept, infantile acts of government communication, possibly the worst piece of government advertising I've ever seen. It's by the Department of Education, and it says in big capital letters, most schools unaffected. So this at the moment is the government's great claim, its big proposal for what it is doing in a positive manner, is to tell people that there's a very good chance that your child's school won't collapse in on their heads when they're there. Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister, did an interview yesterday on the subject and said, look, don't worry about it. 95% of schools are unaffected. In other words, only 5% of you need to worry about the fact that your school might crumble. This story is about something which I never thought I would talk about called reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete or rack for short, which was sort of put in place in public sector buildings, hospitals, schools from really the sort of the 1960s to the mid 90s because it was cheaper. And it's basically concrete with little sort of bubbles in it, little holes for the air. And that means that after 30 years, you really need to change or reinforce it because it is not designed to have a lifespan that goes beyond that period. But over and over again, when the Department of Education asked the Treasury that controls the purse strings, we need more money for capital spending and education, they were told, no, 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 you don't get the money. You know, this is the austerity period that we went through after the financial crash. And then, of course, distracted by Brexit and all the rest, no one wanted to spend the money maintaining schools. And then we find ourselves in the position that we are today, which is that many children are not going back to school because the schools are quite literally unsafe. So, yeah, it is like the government is falling apart, but it's like the basic infrastructure of Britain is now starting to fall apart as well. Now, Sunak has a bit of a track record here, doesn't he? And he, uh, when there's a need to slash budgets, he puts schools on and the future of generation on the cutting block. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's personally implicated in all this. So yesterday, a kind of bombshell intervention by a man called Jonathan Slater. He was the permanent secretary of the Department of Education. Permanent secretary is basically the CEO, the civil service CEO, between 2016 and 2020. And he says, look, we said you need to do at least 400 schools to fix this. Turns out the number's much higher. They put that to the Treasury when Rishi Sunak was chancellor. So when he was in charge of that department, he, they pared it down to 100. And then when they asked for more money again, Sunak intervened and said, no, you know what, we're going to cut it again and you can only fix 50 of the schools. So he himself, through his personal decisions, led to this taking place. But really, there's something broader, which is just this, the mindset in the Treasury. The, the Treasury has, for decades now, really, had an institutional view. 
And the institutional view is pretty much kind of Milton Friedman, Hayek, Thatcher, Reagan economics. I mean, it's a bit more complex than that. But ultimately, they view themselves as, look, ministers will come to us asking for money, asking for investments. Our job is to say no to them because someone has to control the money in some way. Now, that that's a perfectly sort of acceptable view to have, except that they have now gone into a level of myopia and ideological derangement, which is surely beyond even the most sort of straightened fiscal conservative. If you've got a department saying we need the money to make sure that children are safe in schools and your department is still unwilling to give it to them, I mean, allocating 3.1 billion when 7 billion was asked for annually, then you get the kind of outcomes that we're seeing right now. And so it is institutional, but also politically, it's profoundly damaging to the prime minister. And, of course, the same cuts extend to the NHS. They do, yeah. I mean, so, in fact, that material was in NHS buildings. So, I mean, we, this stuff is pretty much everywhere when it comes to public sector buildings. Look, this could have been handled in, in a different way. It's been even... On the basis of the problem itself, and it's hard to think of a worse political scandal, even if it sounds boring about concrete. I mean, there's, it's hard for it to get more acute than saying we're not sure that the school kids are, are safe. However, the person whose desk it landed on is the education secretary, and her name is Gillian Keegan. And she is, I mean, startlingly inept, really. So yesterday she did a series of interviews where she basically went, look, none of this is my fault. We're going to try and fix it. Don't worry. Most of you won't be affected. And then during one interview with ITV, the interview ends and she just starts talking to the journalist. What do you mean? Is it one of these open mic disasters? Yeah, exactly. Well, he just didn't know, well, what is this? You're a professional politician. You're unaware that an open mic can still record what you're saying. I mean, she barely waited one second for the interview to be over before she started talking. And then she says, you know, all of the mock apology about her manner falls away. And she says, does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done an effing good job? because everyone else has sat on their ass and done nothing. And that moment is just caught there. So you suddenly think, okay, so you're not really particularly apologetic at all. You're just really entitled about your own incredibly average performance in relation to this matter. And that, of course, has plunged the government into a new sense of crisis. There as well, there is an institutional problem as well as a personal one. I mean, you look at the Department of Education. In the last two years, there have been six secretaries of state for education. I mean, on average, they're serving I'm a sorry, that's, we've Even Australia hasn't had that many prime ministers. <laughs> no, no, I mean, we're yes, that, that's a very good metric, actually. Uh, no, I mean, we're completely out of control. I mean, you, back in the new Labour years, in the sort of in the noughties and the 90s, you know, people would, would say, isn't it dreadful? Ministers only stay in place for a couple of years now, so they barely even understand their brief by the time they leave. That now looks like the halcyon days of stability compared to what we have now. They just churn them through the system three months, four months, six months at a time. You don't understand a government policy brief until at least six months, and you're not really authoritative on it until about 18 months. And then you think about the incentives, right? Like, why would a Secretary of State for Education have had any incentive to do this really quite boring technical work that's going to take months to deliver, years to deliver? It's going to require some really 
complicated aggregating of data so you can target the resources at the right schools. They don't want to do that. They want to go out and announce new schools, announce new initiatives, not say, well, we've just spent all of this money on maintenance that had to be done because of a, you know, a substance that we used in the 1970s. So they just haven't sat there and done it. And that brings us to where we are today. Talking to Ian Dunt, and of course, Labour are getting ready for the next general election. Time to, uh, well, to have musical chairs in the shadow cabinet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this has been a real kind of, you know, I mean, everyone just came back. Politics only really restarted yesterday after the summer break. And it's a real tale of two parties because you see the Tories in, I mean, just extraordinary chaos and disarray and recrimination. Labour just did this reshuffle under Keir Starmer, the Labour leader. No problems at all. Smooth as silk. I mean, I think some of his decisions were were really quite poor, actually. He got rid of some very impressive people like Lisa Nandy, levelling up secretary from Wigan, a really impressive political performer, but she has an independent political mind, is strong-willed, and therefore has to be ejected from frontline politics because that's how Westminster works. The quality of the appointments that Starmer made actually quite poor. But the professionalism with which it was delivered, really quite noticeable. He sits there, there's really strong cohesion in the Labour Party. There's no internal attacks. And from that, you get this really subtle, but I think quite profound change in the way that the media talk about Labour at the moment. Wes Streeting, the Shadow Health Secretary, was on Radio 4 this morning, and he was spoken to by the presenter, this is the Today programme, the flagship political programme in the UK. He was spoken to as if they were a government in waiting. You look at The Sun, the right-wing tabloid, very critical of Labour, Rupert Murdoch owned. I mean, even in their response to the reshuffle this morning, it was like, oh, this is a step in the right direction. Suddenly this new sense of respect. As journalists think, hang on a minute, the Tories look like a corpse that is being kept alive by primitive science. <laughs> Labour is, is where it's at, and we've got to make contacts with the Labour Party. Yes, and uh, there's every hint that uh, Rupert may, in fact, be swapping sides. Tell me about Angela yes. Rayner. I know nothing about Labour's deputy leader. She's a very interesting figure, not really politically, but um, personally, I mean, she's really quite vivid and colourful for a Westminster politician. Usually they're incredibly tedious, but she isn't. I mean, you know, during the summer, she sort of did an interview and she was just like, well, I've just been at a music festival and I was I spent way too much time vaping, which is not the kind of thing that you usually hear from front bench, you know, Westminster politicians. So she's very characterful. She's um, very sort of emotionally present. So her rhetoric, you know, is often about her feelings and the sort of the community that she's from. She's on the left, but she doesn't really talk about the politics sort of too much. She's got stronger links with the trade unions than Keir Starmer does. The interesting thing in terms of the political arrangements are that she has an independent mandate. She's the deputy leader of the party. That is a voted for position within the party. There is nothing that Keir Starmer can do to get rid of her. So he has to accommodate her in some way. And because she has a very strong personality, unlike him, it has to be said, that's quite a delicate balancing act that they're engaged in. Now, diplomacy matters, says the foreign secretary, after a visit to China, which has become, uh, well, problematic. 
Yeah, I mean, James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, the first trip to China for a very, very long time, really since the what's pathetically called the golden age of UK-Chinese relations in the 2010s, um, really problematic within his own party because so many people there, not least of which backbencher and former leader Ian Duncan Smith, consider any contact with the Chinese at all to be completely immoral. So he goes over and you see Britain in this kind of contorted mess of, well, we need the Chinese trade, we need the Chinese products, we want to get on well with the Chinese, we have to cooperate with them on things like uh, climate change policy, but at the same time, they're currently responsible for genocide against Muslims, there are no individual rights, they don't respect the right of self-determination, for instance, in the case of Taiwan. Now that, of course, that binary contest is understood by pretty much all Western powers. The thing is, most Western countries at least have a policy. Britain has no policy towards China. And this, on the day that James Cleverly is there, you see the Foreign Affairs Committee put out a report, an utterly damning report, just saying there has been a complete failure, this is a quote, to outline clear foreign policy towards China. And across the literature, you find the same thing. House of Lords International Relations and Defence Committee, 2021, found a, quote, strategic void in the UK's policy for trade and security with China. The Intelligence and Security Committee, which is about as high up as it gets. I mean, most of their reports are redacted. They talk directly with MI5, with MI6, with the security services, uh, found that basically China had permeated and penetrated every sector of the UK's economy, but that Britain had no specialist knowledge of how to react towards it. It didn't even have linguistic knowledge. It didn't have many Chinese speakers on staff. It didn't have any assessment of how it would counter the Chinese threat. There is simply no Chinese policy at the heart of British foreign policy. No encounter with you, Ian, would be complete without an update on uh, Suella Braverman. The latest, please. Yeah, so this is the Australian-inspired uh, Rwanda scheme, essentially to treat uh, refugees and asylum seekers as terribly as possible, refuse to process their claims and try and send them off to a third country, essentially just to dump them there. Um, what changed recently was we got a decent assessment of the costs of this policy from the IPPR think tank. Now, if you were to process the claims, as we used to in approximately six months, you would then decide someone's an asylum, a uh, beg your pardon, Rather than being an asylum seeker, they would be either a legitimate refugee, in which case they stay, they can have a job, they pay taxes, they become a member of society and contribute to the economy, or they're not, in which case they're removed, they're deported. Because we're not actually processing any of the claims, people are now, I mean, the waiting list is 130,000 people waiting for a decision. Hardly anyone is processed within six months. It typically takes years. So the costs are just inflating. You know, to detain them, I mean, the, the Britain's building these huge new detention estates. That costs 240 million. The cost of keeping one person for a year is at 7,000 in detention. But all of that pales next to the cost for accommodation. Just having somewhere to put asylum seekers while you refuse to process their claims. And that is projected by IPPR to hit uh, 6.3 billion within five years. It's currently at 2.3 billion. A year. Now, these are extraordinary sums. This is the price of the theatre of sadism that the Home Secretary is perpetuating against asylum seekers. It is simply not even effective in her own grotesque terms. Ian, thanks for your time. Ian Dunt, uh, columns for the Eye newspaper, reporting from London, and Ian will be back in a fortnight. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.